So my prayer is this semester and starting tonight, would you introduce every single friend in this room to themselves and to you? Show us the running that pervades our lives where we silence you and distance you and show us all of the ways you chase us and you pursue us. We pray this in the name of Jesus, who you sent to do this. Amen. Well, most historians consider Winston Churchill to be the savior of Great Britain, at least modern Great Britain as we know it. If you know some of the history, he was a prime minister during the bulk of uh, World War II, and he was preceded by and surrounded by other leaders, other British leaders who to varying degrees wanted to kind of play compromise and negotiate with Hitler. And the guy that was right before him, we even talked about it last fall in a, in a message, but the guy right before him is like, hey, let's try to make, keep Hitler happy. Let's just give him a peace treaty and say, hey, we're not going to fight you as you invade Poland and Czechoslovakia and all these other places. You just don't bother us, okay? And he's surrounded by all these other leaders in Britain who are saying like, let's just mind our own business and stay over here. Churchill saw Hitler for what he was. He's a butcher. He's greedy. And he's not going to stop until he has all of Europe and Russia. And so Churchill springs to action. When he becomes a prime minister, he, he eventually becomes one of the most well-rounded prime ministers they've ever known. Uh, he had, in previous life experience, he had led uh, the, the Navy. He had tons of military experience. He had been the Secretary of Treasury, the British equivalent of that. He had financial experience of how to pay for massive movements of a giant thing like a government. He was a member of parliament. He knew how to get stuff passed and how to galvanize crowds to a vision. And he had tons of other experience. And so he basically saved Britain from having to fight World War II on its turf, on Hitler's terms. Years after the war, he was asked, what was it that helped you persevere through that time? We look back at that with the hindsight of 2020. We know how it turned out. None of them knew how it would turn out when the Germans were bombing London. Uh, nightly. Churchill says this, I felt as if I were walking with destiny and that all my past life had been but a preparation for this hour and this trial. I was sure that I would not fail. He said, I felt this just calm, this sense that I was walking with destiny through these four or five years of national conflict I felt like my whole life up to this moment had been a preparation for this hour, for this trial, and I was sure that I should not fail. I couldn't help but think of that interview and his response to it when I was starting to kind of get into the book of Jonah to prepare for this spring, even the opening verses of this book. Because if ever there was a prophet, if ever there was a person whose whole life leading up to this moment was a preparation for this trial and this hour and this test and this moment. It was Jonah, son of Amittai. If, if anybody's uh, past had been preparation for that, if anyone could say, I feel like I'm walking with destiny, then my whole life has been one walk up to this climactic moment. It would have been Jonah, son of, son of Amittai. 
And yet, what happens to Jonah in his climactic moment in the spotlight when God himself calls his prophet Jonah to rise up and go uh, to Nineveh? Well, without, if you don't even know any of the background, you don't know what Nineveh means, you don't know who Jonah is, you don't know what a prophet is, any of that, you don't have to know that to at least see this at the very beginning. In Jonah's critical moment, he whiffs, he fumbles, he botches it, he screws it all up. It's not even that it's the bottom of the ninth inning with two outs, bases loaded, down by three, and he's got two strikes on him. It's that that he doesn't even go to the plate. He's crushed by the moment. And you hear in the stadium like wheels peeling out of where the players park and he's out of there. All of his life was preparation for this moment. He was walking with destiny. This is a God this prophet knew, had long history with. And here he is getting as far away from the presence of the Lord as he possibly can. Now, listen, um, starting to kind of get into some of these details and explain them a little bit more. So hang with me. If you were one of the original Israelites who heard this account of Jonah's life and this moment, um, you would have been shocked by the fifth word of the second sentence. You know, most stories, like most movies, you kind of sit down, you like kick your feet back, start getting in your popcorn. You're like, it's going to be a few minutes before anything really important happens. They teach you in school, you know, rising action. And then later on in the story, a climax and then, you know, resolution and falling action. And Jonah is like 11 words in and it's boom. The climax hits you up front. Hope you were paying attention. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah and he flees the presence of the Lord who he had communed with regularly his whole life. And he's out the door. It was startling. It was scandalous. It was not what you would have expected. If you're a little boy or a little girl and your, your Jewish mother or father back in the day is reading this bedtime story to you you would have been shocked because every other story we have recorded in the Bible of prophets receiving words from God to tell his people, it starts just like this. The word of the Lord came to Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Nahum, Micah. Pick your prophet. The word of the Lord came to fill in the blank and Isaiah or Ezekiel or Jeremiah did as the Lord commanded. Do you even remember if you're a church person, you, you've probably, you remember this. We've made songs out of it. Isaiah 6, 8. Isaiah is being called by the Lord as a prophet to go and preach to God's people in Judah. And, he said, and the Lord is saying, whom shall I send? You remember what Isaiah says? Here I am. I will go. Send me. And here is Jonah's moment. Whom shall I send? And you hear wheels screeching. Wait, where are you going? <laughs> uh, Nineveh's this way. Nineveh's in New York City and you're driving to Miami. The reason, again, just to deepen this, the reason it's so shocking, Jonah's response, whether you know anything about him or not, the reason his response to God's call is so shocking is that Jonah is a prophet. Hang with me for about a minute or two. Don't tune out because this 
will make the difference on whether you see how your life connects to this or not. Jonah is a prophet of the living God, which means he's not like us. I'm not a prophet. You're not a prophet. Jonah's a prophet. When Jonah says something, God has said it through him. He is a mouthpiece, a speaker for the living God of the universe to his people. When God has a message for his people, he says it through his prophets. Prophets had different lives than we do. We know a few things about Jonah. We know we can assume he's well known because there's not a lot of biographical info in here. It just says the word of the Lord came to the son of Amittai, Jonah. And you're like, well, who's this guy again? Where's this Wikipedia page? And you're like, well, if I told you Donald Trump said this, I don't have to say, okay, now he's the president. He's been in there two years. This is what people think about him. You know who he is. The writer of Jonah assumes everybody knows who this guy is. He's either famous or infamous. He is well known in Israel. He is a prophet. Uh, because he's a prophet, he's around the time of the mid 700s BC. Hosea is a contemporary of his. He's a prophet during the king, Jeroboam the second. Uh, and, and prophets, prophets didn't so much just sit in small groups and say, what do you think the passage means here? God told the prophets. He revealed his will. He revealed himself. Do you remember what some of the prophets saw? The visions they had, the dreams they had. Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Immediately he runs away and he says, woe is me, a man of unclean lips. I'm unworthy. That is the degree of intimacy and communion, face-to-face communion between a person, a human being and their maker. That's what the prophets had. They lived in the presence of the Lord. Jonah, earlier in his life, the way God trained and shaped his prophets, call them the sons of the prophets, not biological sons of these prophets, but the apprentice, the protégés, which means Jonah's upbringing would have included amazing stratospheric spiritual mentors that he looked up to, that taught him the ways that he could ask any question to. Imagine the the richness of fellowship and community he had with his buddies growing up. He didn't, he's not an agnostic wondering, is God, is God there? Is God where? He knows God is there. He's seen him and he's seen him at work in the world, the real world of history and nation states and battles and kings. This Jonah knows his God and he has history with him and he has a clear sense of his destiny. Again, different than us. We go through senior year. Oh, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with my life next. What am I supposed to do? Maybe by like mid twenties or late twenties, if you're like me, an epiphany happens, but not for Jonah. Jonah, you're a prophet. You will be my messenger to my people. Clear-eyed destiny, clear-eyed sense of purpose of why he's on planet earth and what his life is about. It's about saying whatever he says to these people and leading the people of God. That's who Jonah was. That's why I thought of Churchill. If anybody's life was a life of preparation for this hour, for this trial, for this moment, if anybody should have said, I felt like I was walking with destiny, it would have been Jonah. And yet he is running as far away as he can get. If you had a map, you'd be able to see this. Nineveh, from where Jonah is when he hears this, is about 600 miles away. Some of you have fought literal battles in Mosul, Iraq. That's what Nineveh is today, where our troops are fighting ISIS right now. 
or we were. That's where Nineveh is, about 600 miles that way, where uh, the, the text says this, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Listen to the repetition. From the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa, found a ship, that's where the port was, going to Tarshish. He paid, he went down into it to go away from the presence of the Lord. And the question is, wait a second. Now that you know the background, what his life must have been like growing up. But the context is now you're asking the question, how did this happen, Jonah? If this is some random dude sitting on his couch and he hears the voice of God say, go to this. And he's like eating Doritos. And he's like, wait, what? Me? Is that Alexa? Who's talking to me? What is this? But this is a prophet. He knows who told him to go. He audibly hears, the, he hears God say, rise up and go. Imagine the moments after the sound wave started, stopped vibrating from God's audible voice telling what to do. Imagine you've just heard those words. And then there's this. You're like, do I get a follow-up question? Me? Why Nineveh? Uh, Ironically, it's much like Nineveh of today or Mosul of today or Syria of today. Filled with ISIS, brutal people. The Ninevites, the Assyrians, were known for their brutality in the ancient world. These were the people who beheaded little kids. These were the people who raped women and then executed their husbands in front of them. These were the people who did the most gruesome things to the people they conquered. That's the Ninevites that God calls his prophet to go and cry out against the evil, their evil that has risen up against him. And Jonah knows, we know from later on in the book, Jonah knows what God's up to. I know what he's going to do. He's going he's to give them the opportunity to repent and to show mercy on them. So how, again, does Jonah end up running? It's not just that he runs, even that. It's not just that he runs a little way and then he says, oh, what am I doing? I can't run. God is God. He's transcendent. He's omnipresent. Where can I go that's out of his presence? It's not even that. Jonah has to, at some point, probably go back to his house. He empties out his bank accounts and he gets all of his money and he, he rushes it down to the docks and he says, is there still a ship going to Tarshish? And the way, the way we know it cost a lot of money is Tarshish, unlike Nineveh, only 600 miles away, was thousands of miles away on the opposite side of the Mediterranean. Have you ever seen an ancient Near Eastern map? They thought the world ended just past Tarshish. They didn't have a globe. They didn't know the world was round. That was the edge of the earth. Jonah is literally running as far as humanly possible from the presence of his God because of this call. He has emptied his bank account to pay for what would be a marathon long voyage, a very dangerous voyage with primitive seafaring through that sea. And he's going the opposite direction of Nineveh again. Why? How? This man responding this way to this God. And then it begs the question, how do any of us run from this God? How do we find so many similarities and familiarities between our biography and Jonah's biography? especially as we start to dive into this this spring and you see the, the pathology of his heart and his emotions and his feelings and his thoughts. 
You know, you should know B.B. King. This is not an old guy music reference. You should know him if you know anything about music. Kind of the godfather of the blues. He died a few years ago. He's on the diabetes commercials back in the day. One of his most famous songs is The Thrill is Gone. It's weird to read lyrics to blues songs, but I'm not going to sing it to you. And he says, the thrill is gone. It's gone away from me. The thrill is gone, baby. The thrill is gone away from me. Although I still live on, but so lonely I'll be. So to use BB's words, how do we lose the thrill? How do you go from what Jonah had to where Jonah was? Where you are itching to get away from God. How did it happen? Did it come out of a vacuum? Did it just appear, this resistance? It couldn't have. Didn't you hear what I've just been saying the past few minutes? So where did it come from? What was the dark catalyst or cause for a heart that doesn't feel comfortable in the presence of God? Not, nobody really feels comfortable in the presence of God. Isaiah was like, stay away. I'm a man of unclean lips. The disciples on the boat were saying the same thing when Jesus appeared in glory. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying you just, you feel just deeply uncomfortable and like, I don't want to be here. How do you, how does a human, how do you get to that point where your preferable path forward is to tune down, to turn the volume down on the voice of God in your life and to turn the volume up in other areas to drown it out? How does that happen? How do Christians who grew up in church and remember those thrilling early days, those exhilarating early days of knowing your maker for the first time in your life and immediately knowing your purpose and knowing your future and knowing your own identity? How does that person slide to a place where you are either subconsciously or consciously just kind of like, I'm just here because this is what I do on Wednesday nights. I just go to church because I think I'd feel guilty if I didn't. How does that happen? If you're not a Christian, if you don't know where you are with God, how do you get to the point where this God of the Bible, we can talk about this truth claim, but he claims that he has just paraded before you every day through his creation and through your conscience, his reality and his presence. How is it possible for you to miss him, to run from him, to suppress the evidence plainly in front of your eyes? How is it possible? And why do we do it? The Bible assumes we all do it. Religious person like Jonah, non-religious person like the Ninevites or the sailors that we'll come across in a couple of weeks. Why do we do it? How does it happen? Well, that's what I want to spend the last uh, chunk of our time together talking about. How does it happen? I think through a pretty ordinary way that's not going to shock you. It happens, I think, through subtle inattention. And coasting. Uh, Allowing our souls to become crusty and kind of stale. I think it comes from this subtle distancing, subtle distancing that we do to keep an uncontrollable, sovereign, immense God to just keep a little bit of a buffer between me and him. Because I want a controllable, predictable life that my hands are on the reins of. That's how it happens. It happens through little moments of turning down the volume on his word to us. 
because we just don't want to hear it. We think if we listen, if we obey him, if we yield ourselves to him in that area of our lives, it will bring chaos or it will bring death, a death of a dream. It'll bring misery. It'll bring curse. So we turn the volume down. He says, just out of a fatherly heart of compassion and goodness, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. And we turn the volume down and we say, no, 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 no. It's the clear word of the Lord to me. But no, you have no idea. What will they think of me if I confess this? My relationship with this small group of this roommate will never be the same. He clearly says to us, be reconciled to one another. Do not let a root of bitterness grow up between you and another person. And we say, yeah, but my, this Cold War detente I got going on with this person, we just avoid each other, is working okay. We turn the volume down. And we distance him. He says, flee sexual immorality. In 2 Thessalonians, he says, this is the will of God for your life. Literally, he says that verbatim. Flee. Sexual immorality is destroying you. It's destroying these other people. We turn the volume down. Jonah had to turn the volume down in subtle ways to the voice of his God a thousand times before he could have been capable of just turning his back on his God in this moment. Do you see that? This did not happen out of a vacuum. It was a, it was a practiced response. Running from God always starts invisibly, subtly, subconsciously. And only over time does it kind of come out into public and become conscious running some of you know what I'm talking about. You're at a place or you have been at a place or you've got a close friend or sibling at a place where consciously they've ditched it. They're running from God and they're making no excuses about it. Some of you are at a place where it's going to be harder to detect the ways you're turning down the volume on the word of God and just kind of coasting and saying, the way things are going now are pretty good. I don't want to mess that up. Maybe after college, Lord, I'll do some of that stuff. And in those places, it's, it's subterranean but the seeds of running are already in us. We're already doing those leg workouts. Our bodies, our souls, our hearts are getting more and more prepared to run if these things are not addressed. So we turn down the volume of his voice in tiny little ways until we can't hear it anymore. Jonah did it. The sailors we're going to meet in two weeks did it. The Ninevites will meet in a couple more weeks. They did it too. And I do. And you do. And the Bible gets it. And the Bible gets you. It knows that we are escape artists. That's not news to God. That's not a shocking revelation, an epiphany that he's stumbled upon in your life. He knows. That's why he has seen fit that through the years, this book would be recorded and survive till today and meet your ears tonight. Is you're a runner. And the guy preaching to you is a runner and has been unsettled in my study and preparation of this book. It has exposed my running. It has exposed the ways as a RUF campus minister, I turn the volume down on the voice of the one who loves me and pursues me. Again, how does it happen? I think one more level of depth here before we close. Paul Tripp, an author, theologian, a professor, a counselor, diagnoses the deep, deep, deep cause 
the, the catalyst for planting those seeds of wanting to get out of the presence of God, wanting to run from him, preferring a costly life on the run versus a costly life with him. He puts his finger on, he says, it is a lack of awe of the living God. A lack of awe. Now, we, don't, we use the word awesome a lot. I don't think we use the word awe a lot. Awe is that it's a magnetic thing that sucks you into something and keeps you attached to it. It is awe of Georgia football that keeps some of you, like Liz Perry, since the time she was a little girl till now, she's like all about Georgia football. I'm like, how has your attention span lasted that long and that intensity? She's got face paint on on a Friday before a game. That's awe. The author that you have read as a little kid and you still love to go back and read, that's awe. Awe means it never gets old for you. It's always fresh. It's always new. It's always rejuvenating. It's always exploding life. That is awe. You can't turn your face away from awe. It is captivating. It is arresting. It is entrancing. That is awe. A quick aside, the perspective that we've been shared with what's going on in heaven now is being surrounding the Father, Son, and Spirit who can't take their eyes off of him because he is enrapturing and captivating. He has completely arrested their attention because of his beauty and his life and his goodness. That is awe. And that's the response that happens in a human being's heart when we have encountered something awesome or full of awe. And when it is there, it's immensely powerful and it maintains your attention span. But when we lose the awe of God or when you never have it to begin with, what are you left with? And this is where Romans 1 that I've been referencing, if if you don't know where you are with God, you know you're not about him or don't believe in him, whatever Romans 1 is where Paul says, all you're left with if you lose the awe of God is awe of yourself. You become enraptured with yourself, enamored with your dreams, in love with your ideas, captive, arrested by, enshackled by, enslaved by, entranced by yourself, your future, my plans. How does this happen? When we lose the awe of God, when there's a bankruptcy in, in our awe for God, it's because we spend every last dollar on ourselves. That, I think, is what's behind. That's the motivator. It's why we go over to the, to the box and turn the volume down. Because I really am more enamored with my thoughts about what's going to be best for Ben's tomorrow or next year or moment now. I do believe, oftentimes, that I know a thing or two more than God about pleasure and about happiness, and about sustenance in life. Awe of myself. I so respect my gut feelings that I listen to them. I do not turn the volume down on those oftentimes. But I squelch him to listen to this. Jonah did too. He did it so many times that one day, when the ask was large, he ran as far as he could get away from the presence of the God he knew and loved his whole life. And I guarantee you, he never thought he was capable of this. 
Paul Tripp says, this is what uh, sin does to us all. At a deep and often unnoticed level, sin replaces worship of God with worship of self. It replaces submission with self-rule. It replaces rest in God's sovereignty with a quest for personal control. We require life to be predictable, satisfying, and easy. We do all of these things because we're full of ourselves, in awe more of ourselves than of God. Here we see the great replacement again. It's, it's what sin does to us all. We are no longer living for God, and so we live for ourselves. And when this happens, when we have lost in awe of God, we don't see him as he is anymore, and we grow very, very suspicious of him. And we grow very suspicious of his motives. Why is he doing this to me? What's he up to? Is he going to do this? You know, that relationship I thought was going to be my future. That was my wife. That was my husband. And it train wrecked. I know it. I know what he's up to. I got the gift. I'm going to be single the rest of my life. Or I didn't get the internship. I thought I was going to have this coming summer. I know what he's up to. He doesn't want me to be happy. He wants to keep me humble. We begin to grow very suspicious, not just of who he is, but his motives, his plans, his management of our lives, his management of the world. We begin to expect evil of him. Tim Keller is helpful here. He says, sin always begins with the character assassination of God. If you want to understand your own behavior, you must understand that all sin against God is grounded in a refusal to believe that God is more dedicated to your good And he's more aware of what your good is than you are. We distrust God because we assume he's not truly for us. And that if we gave him complete control, we would be miserable. Jonah had such a bankruptcy of awe. Of this good. This gracious, this powerful, this sovereign God. That he slid and he slid until it turned into running and running, and running. One of Jonah's fatal flaws becomes ours. He forgot who was calling him, right? Isaiah had to have been scared about God's plans for his life, right? Deeply unsettled, like, is this going to turn out well for me? Um, All the other prophets, even the apostles, you, There's a little bit of like goosebumps when you become a Christian of like, wait, my life is yours. What are you going to do with my life? What are you going to do with my, my, my future? Of course they had to been, had to have been scared, but they remembered who was doing the calling. This is the redeeming God who has skin in the game. He's not just a God who talks and says inspirational things. He's a God who has literal human blood and skin in the game, redeeming and renewing this world and people like you. What if Jonah had remembered, oh my goodness, why is he calling me to Nineveh? Why to the ISIS recruits? Why are we doing a mission trip to Syria to evangelize ISIS? But I know who goes with me. I know who has called me. He is the king of hearts. He holds the hearts of kings in his hand. And he can squish an ISIS member under his thumb if he'd like. Or he can soften that heart so that that person is praising Jesus for the rest of his life. That's who calls. He is God. That's what Jonah lost sight of and what we lose sight of. And the book could have ended there. This could, this could have been the only message in this series. Next week, we move on to Hosea. Jonah fled the Lord and the Lord snuffed him out. 
Fire from heaven, boom, shipwreck. But the story goes on. Genesis 3, the Bible should have ended in Genesis 3 after our representatives acting on our behalf screwed it all up, whiffed, fumbled, botched it all, went and ran from the presence of God as far as they could. We do this too. In our critical moments where the faith is tested and we wither, we back away, we distance, we compromise. The Bible or our stories perhaps should have ended after those moments. And yet I love the lack of any buffer. The very next verse that we'll talk about next week. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And thus begins the chase. Here's the thing, friends. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. It is an answer to the bad news of me and of you. We chase what we love and we love the wrong things. And we have fallen in love with the wrong things and it's killing us and it's killed us. But the good news of the gospel, what Christianity is all about is God also chases what he loves. And what he says, not me, his words, not mine, what he loves as revealed in this book is runaway prophets who do not respect him and have no awe of him. And think he is evil. And he chases pagan or non-believing, just kind of worshiping Marduk and other gods he worships. Or, uh, he, he loves and chases those sailors. He loves and chases these wicked Ninevites. And the chase begins with the storm he sends to thwart Jonah's escape. I want to end with this. Uh, Andrew Peterson, a guy some of you may have heard of, he wrote a song called The Chasing Song. And it goes like this. It's a story of all the chasing that goes on in the Bible. He says, Samson, because Samson chased a woman and he chased the Philistines. I'm not quite sure what Jonah chased, but I know he caught the sea. Cain, he chased the harvest while Abel chased the beasts. David, he chased God's own heart. And all I ever seem to chase is me. And Jesus chased the money men, and he chased the Father's will, and he chased my sin to Calvary, and he caught it on the hill. What you are about to hear in the coming weeks is the story, not just of Jonah going down to the depths of his own sin, but a God who meets you where you are, even in the depths of hell. And he goes down to the deepest depths to chase his people and to bring them back to himself through Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, amen. And enable us to hear this word to us tonight. Make us awestruck. Put it into our running. Show us your power. Show us your goodness, we pray, and we need it in thwarting our escape. We pray this in your name. Amen.